0: Welcome to audio from Ballyhalbert Gospel Hall. Listen in as we open God's Word and share how it should impact our lives. We hope it blesses you. Nice to be back in Ballyhalbert. Can I get you to turn to a well-known passage and it's Luke's Gospel chapter 15. It's probably the uh, the most beloved parables that Jesus told. And we're just going to take a wee look tonight at one we feature. And it's basically the time when the Father and the Son were reunited. Just that encounter when the prodigal son came home and he met the Father. And I've a wee question for you. Um, What is it that makes you happy? What is it that sort of gets you all excited, makes you want to punch the air and say yes? Now, my wee dog, Diesel, is an old wee dog now. Uh, Not much mobility about him. I have to carry him upstairs to bed. And I'm getting to the stage, and I'm going to need somebody to carry me and the dog up. Stairs to bed, but uh, I can still throw my pig's ear, and I'll surely discover there's energy in the tail. The tail can waggle like that because he still gets joy and happiness from chewing his pig's ear. Uh, you may get some sort of a happiness when uh, someone in the family gets married, a child is born, an anniversary, just something out there that gets you excited. Down the years Manchester United has got my tail to waggle a fair wee bit. But uh, if you know things at present, my tail's not waggling. Manchester United are not doing too well. They're in free fall, but we live in hope that maybe the day may come when they'll do something on the field that'll get me excited once again and bring some joy into my heart. But we live in hope. What about God? What is it that would bring a smile to the face of God and a joy in his heart? There's got to be something other than the, the glorious universe that he made. And of course there is. In the book of Micah chapter 7, there's a wee phrase there, and it simply says, About God, the God that pardons, he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. It says the angels of heaven rejoice when a sinner repents. Why? Because that's the moment when God steps in with join his heart and he shows mercy to the sinner that repents. God, the Lord Jesus, always gets joy when he shows mercy. Uh, Before we read this wee bit in in Luke, in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 3 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto Jesus a woman taken in adultery, And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken into adultery in the very act. So in other words, Master Jesus, this woman is absolutely guilty. She was caught in the very act. She is worthy of condemnation and for the law to be invoked and for you to say, take her out and stone her to death. That's what the law demanded. That's what the law required. And thus, that's what the woman deserved. So how did Jesus handle that? Did he invoke the law? Or did he show mercy? The way the story goes on. Um, It says, um, Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? So the implication was that they expected and they desired that the law would be invoked, that she's taken out and stoned. That's where their joy was. They'd love to see this woman, this sinful, guilty woman, uh, pay the price of her sins, getting what she deserved. And then it goes on in verse 8. And again he stooped down and he wrote upon the ground. And when they they which heard it, being convicted in their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning from the eldest, the eldest, even unto the to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman uh, standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself, and he saw none but the woman, he said unto her woman, Where are those? Thine accusers. Has no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. When the wee group were demanding, She should be stoned. That's what the law requires. And if you are who you say you are, you have come from God, then you must stand alongside the law and give the word that this woman, this guilty woman, is stoned as the law requires. Jesus decides to write something on the ground and everybody's been wondering down the centuries. What did Jesus write on the ground that made all the accusers skedaddle away one by one? You see, nobody has any right or standing to accuse another unless, as Jesus says, "Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And and we suspect that Jesus began to write the names of all the accusers and their sins. And one by one they realized, I've not got any standing here. I've no right to condemn. I should skedaddle out of here with my guilty conscience. They got a joy out of accusation and a demand for judgment. The Lord Jesus got pleasure and said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Go thy way and sin no more. It was his delight. It was his joy. It was his pleasure to show mercy to the woman and let her go. So here we are in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. And I say it's just uh, the the encounter between the boy and the father. But uh, we, we, we meet the boy uh, in verse uh, 16. And it says, And he fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine had eat. And no man gave unto him. So there he is, down uh, fighting with the pigs over the swell. And he's at his lowest ebb. And he's trying to figure out with himself, is there anything better out there for me? have to stay here and perish alongside the pigs, is there not a better option? And then he talks to himself, and here's what he says, look at verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before they. So he's sitting down there and we, uh, we phrase it, he came to himself, uh, he got his brain back, he got smart, he wised up, he saw the light, he began to think straight, Surely there is something out there, outside this far country, that's better than staying here and perishing alongside the pigs. Surely there must be a better option than here. There's got to be something better. Now, in the book of Proverbs, there's uh, the mention of some wee wise creatures. Uh, There's the coney we've talked about before, and there's the wee ant we've talked about before, and of course there is indeed the spider. And it says this sweet ugly thing with all of the legs that whenever you see it you scream and you, 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 uh, something go down your spine uh, that, that awful sense of awfulness uh, a spider's there but the Bible says some of those spiders are wiser than human beings. They're wise creatures. The wisdom of a spider. Well what is the wisdom of a spider? Well, it simply says that uh, spiders can be found in king's palaces. See, they're not all stupid. Now, there's a fair amount of stupid ones. If you head off to a farmer's barn even as we come into the winter, where it's cold and it's dark and it's rat infested, you'll find hundreds of stupid spiders, and that's where they live, and that's where they've built their way up. Oh, the wiser ones, they say. Uh, unless there's a law that says I must live there, I'm going to go and live somewhere else. I'll head off to London. I'll go to that big house at the bottom of the mall. I'll sneak and past the guards. I'll, I'll climb up a dream pipe. I'll get in through the window and I'll build my web somewhere in the grandeur of the king's palace. That's the wisdom of a spider. They know it's good for them. See, initially, when you come across this young fella, you couldn't talk sense to him. When he says, Dad, I'm uh, picking my bags and I'm heading off to the far country because uh, that, that, that's where life is. And, and the father, no doubt, did his best to try and dissuade him and say, son, you're only to destroy your life. I, I want you to, to, to think wisely and, and that's not the place you should be. But he wouldn't listen. And off he went. And he's experienced the brokenness of the far country. And he's now sitting and he's beginning to think a wee bit like a spider. Do I have to stay here? Is there another option for me? Yeah, can I sort of save the rest of my life somewhere else? And, and, and the light dawns upon his, upon his mind. And he begins to realize, you know, I can arise. And I can go, and I can go to my father's house. I can get up where I am, I can leave where I am, and I can go elsewhere. I can go back to my father's house. It's better for me there. It's not good for me to stay where I am in the far country in a broken world with all the misery. Jesus, I can get up and I can leave this broken world and I can go back to my father's house. It's going to be better for me there. There was something that he could do. Arise and go to his father's house. Something that he could do. But he recognized also there was something he had to say. And that was, and it was all well rehearsed. As he realized, whenever I left my father's house, I broke his heart. I squandered uh, the the money he would worked hard for by way of my inheritance. I I wasted all of that. Uh, And so when I meet him again, I need to say something to him. I need to say, Father, I'm sorry. I've hurt you. I've offended you. I've wasted your resources on riotous living. I've squandered it. You worked hard for it, and I wasted it. And I'm sorry, Father. So he recognized there's something he could do. a raise and go to his father's house. But there's also something he had to say. He had to say, Father, I've sinned. That's the gospel, isn't it? See, you've lived your life, perhaps, in rebellion against God. God has tried to show you a better way, a different way, one in relationship with him. But something nature has taken you away from God, and you've lived an independent life in rebellion against God, but maybe it hasn't turned out as wonderful as you thought. And maybe at that stage in your thinking, when maybe the light is shining, you're coming to your senses, when you realize you could save the rest of your life with something far, far better, the wisdom of the spider, you could go back to the father's house and say, Father, I've sinned. So he's got that intention. He says, that's what I should do. I look around at all this brokenness and all this misery, the pigs, and it's not going to be anything different from here on, so I could go back home And I could say, Father, I've sinned, and enjoy something far, far better. Get a new way of life. Enjoy blessings instead of the miseries. A wonderful intention was born in his heart. And a lot of people arrive at that intention. And maybe you're here tonight, and that intention has been in your heart and your mind maybe for years. You can remember sitting in meetings, and you thought to yourself, that preacher's right. I should leave this whole sinful life of mine and get back to God and say, God, I'm sorry, and enjoy the blessings of salvation. But you're still sitting, maybe tonight, with good intentions. You've never brought about effective action. See, the fellow's not just sitting forever saying, you know, that's a good idea. I should do that sometime. Someday I should pick my bags, whatever I've left and, and head over the hill and down the road and get back to my father and tell him I'm sorry. That's a good plan. I'm gonna work on it someday. Maybe next week. Maybe the, the next year I'll implement the plan and, and pick the bags and go back home and you know, good intentions are always there, bubbling away, but never acted upon. see what it says verse 20 and he rose and he came to his father it wasn't just a plan in the mind it just wasn't a good intention in the heart he says this is the day this is the moment I'm picking the bags I'm shaking the pole. of the pig and say you can have the swell you can fight amongst yourselves for it I'm out of here I'm heading back home I'm going to see my father's face again I'm heading back to my father at his action. And maybe that's where some of you need to get to. Get beyond just the good intention of getting right with God. Make this the day, make this the hour, make this the moon. When you pick your bags, you raise and you go and you say, Father, I have sinned. So he's come back home the Father. Now, this is the encounter, and this is the, the, the joys and the pleasures of mercy. Now, take a wee look there at verse 21. Verse 20. And he arose, and he came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion upon him, And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. It's the kiss. He kissed him. Now you stand back at that and think to yourself now, the fellow's certainly not getting what he deserves. If he was to get what he deserved, he wouldn't be getting his neck kissed, he'd be getting his neck broken but there's always something in the Old Testament about the significance of the kiss. There were two brothers uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Jacob and Esau. And uh, Jacob, you wouldn't like Jacob as a brother. You wouldn't like him. I had my brother and we had our uh, squabbles and our fights, nipping wars, all that kind of stuff, I've told you about to, but he was a good brother he was there to help me out and teach me to kick football and play marbles and get me out of trouble and get me down out of trees, I got stuck on and so on, he was a good brother I could trust him you couldn't trust Jacob and, and Esau was the oldest you see not by very much, but he was the oldest and so all the family wealth was going to come down to him. And Jacob always wanted to get his hands on it. Always looking for an opportunity to, to rope my brother blind. Waiting for an open door to put his boot through it and seize it. And the time came. The father getting old, and bit demonized. He says to the boy, he saw a way you go and kill yourself uh, uh, something and rustle it up and make a stew out of it and we'll have a special time together and and, and I will pray and lay hands upon you as it were and, and I will hand legally all the possessions to you. It's gonna be yours. And a sense Jacob was listening outside the door. He says this is my opportunity. He got himself all dressed up like his brother put on his brother's voice and he rustled up a stew and the father having bad eyesight couldn't figure out just exactly who he was he took his word for it when the voice says i am esau and the father believed it was esau and the stew was there and they had a special time and legally he brought the blessing down and all the land and the wealth was Jacob's. And when Esau realized what had happened, the Bible says he wept. He wept. The realization, he had been robbed. All the blessing was stolen from him, not by his stranger, but by his brother. Where's the brotherly love? Where's the bone? Rob blind by my brother. And the Bible says, and he hated Jacob. For good reason. So all that was there, that's the history. An awful brother that robbed the, the decent brother blind. Now in chapter 33 of Genesis, uh, there's decades between them in time, and it says, "And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, Esau came." Oh, he never wanted to meet Esau again. Esau was the hunter; he probably big muscles, you see. And Jacob, uh, maybe just an average five eight, but he knew that. You know, should he ever come across his big brother Esau again, he would be in serious trouble. And here he is now with the wealth increased and multiplied in many, many ways. And he comes across his brother and he knows I'm in trouble here. He'll seek revenge. What happens? Well, it says this. And he looked, and behold, Esau came, and with him, four hundred men. So it wasn't just his big brother coming into view. The big brother was coming with a gang of four hundred. And maybe Jacob thought, well, if me and and my servants, if it's just Esau on his own, we could all handle But he's coming with four hundred big fellas, as big as himself. He's going to slaughter us. That was the expectation. And I suppose if he's looking at it from a a moral sense, he would say, this is my big comeuppance. And who would blame my brother if he cuts the head off me, if he slaughters all that I have? Who could blame him? But what transpired? This is lovely Because... It goes on to say in verse 3, And Jacob, he passed over before that, his family, and, and he bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. That's him trying to save his life and the life of his family. If I humble myself, if I bow myself, if I ingratiate myself to my brother, maybe a slaughter, a massacre will not take place trying to find some way to survive. But then it says, verse 4, And Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they both wept. You see what it is? The kiss symbolizes forgiveness. Forgiveness. He was a big brother, my goodness. Was he badly wounded by a scheming brother? That made him angry and made him hit Jacob for what he had done to him. But here came this time when they met one to another and Esau runs to him just like the father to the prodigal and falls on his neck and kissed him. The kiss. Of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what it means, the kiss. It's the kiss of forgiveness and reconciliation. So when the father runs to the boy, he falls on his neck and he, he kisses him and he hugs him. He is saying, son, uh, no matter how much you hurt me and wounded me and have sinned against me, I want you to know you are forgiven. Given. that lies the heart of the gospel that's why Jesus died upon a cross that God could show the blessings of mercy he could give you the kiss of forgiveness and reconciliation but it was more than just a kiss he uh, got something else in Luke's gospel chapter 15 not only did he get, uh, get the kiss and he kissed him Uh, And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand. A robe and a ring. The best robe. Didn't just say to the servants, this fella's filthy. Run in there and grab yourself a a robe or something. Bring it out here and cover him because he stinks. No, he says, go into the house and find the most expensive robe. The best robe. The one we bought just yesterday. The best robe you have and bring it and put it on my filthy son. And cover up the filth and the rags. The best robe. You see, when we come to God, we come as we are in all of our sinfulness, iniquity, and rebellion. And God will address that. He forgives it. But then he gives another gift on top of that. He gives us the best robe that he has. The Bible calls it the robe of righteousness. God's glorious robe of righteousness. That's the best robe of them all. But some people think they've got a robe that sort of competes with God's robe. It's what we would call self-righteousness. We think that uh, if we just uh, uh, live a decent sort of a life and keep the law and help our neighbor and look at animals and are charitable and uh, humanitarian in the way that we live, that somehow all of that counts for something before the presence of God. God says it doesn't. His Bible calls it filthy rags. He rejects that robe. It's a self-righteous robe. It's a robe made of the flesh. God says, I've got a better robe for you. It's a robe of righteousness. How do you get it? Well, the word for it in the Bible is the word imputed. Imputed righteousness. Let us say that uh, I write a, a cheque for a thousand pounds and I give it a Liam over here. He hasn't earned that thousand pounds. He hasn't done anything for it. I've just gone to lay him, and out of my generosity, uh, out of the kindness of my heart, I give it to him as a gift. So he takes that check, and what does he do with it? He goes down to his bank, and he gives it to the tiller, and she takes it and puts that amount into his account. That's what imputed righteousness is like. See, all that I have is self-righteousness. And God says, I I, I despise that self-righteousness. Get rid of self-righteousness. He says, I've got a better rope for you. It's one that comes from me to use a gift. It's the righteousness of a son. The Lord Jesus became sin for us. Who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him a robe of righteousness, the best robe. But then there's a ring in the finger. That signifies sonship. Whenever he was sitting amongst the pigs and he was thinking what he should do and rehearsing what he should say, he says, I- I'll go back to my father's house, I'll rise and go, and then I'll send my father, I have sinned against you, And then he also thought, I'll also say to him that I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me a hired servant. I'm not expecting to sleep in the old bed in the old bedroom to sit around your fireside or your breakfast table. Uh, I'm not expecting to be treated like a son anymore. Uh, I'll be glad to be a servant. I'll milk the cows. I'll plow the fields. I'll sleep in the barn. Just to be a servant be better than what I left. But the father said, no, no. You'll not be sleeping in the barn. You, you, you'll not be plowing the fields. You'll not be milking the cows. The servants do that. You'll be back in your bed. You'll be back around my fireside. There's that ring of sonship. And never you forget from this day on, you're my son. You're my son. I find that quite awesome. Whenever I got saved, and I've told you how, quite a few times down the years, but basically I sat in the preacher's car and the preacher got his Bible out to show me the way of salvation. And at that moment in time, all I was really seeking for was just uh, my sins to be forgiven and a guarantee that when I would die, I'd be in God's heaven. And i had been very happy with that. If that's all I would get, I would be delighted with that. Sins forgiven, a place in heaven, who wouldn't be happy? But then after I got saved, and my sins were forgiven, and, and uh, I have a place booked reserved in heaven, uh, I began to read my Bible and began to discover that whenever I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to be my Savior, uh, there was something happening a, a lot more than just sins forgiven and a place booked and reserved in heaven. Listen to this here. John's Gospel, chapter 1, and verse 11, it says, about the Lord Jesus, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But then it says, but as many as receive him, to them he gives authority and the power to what? To become the sons of God. The realization that this cake that God baked for me had icing on the cake. I, I thought all there was, my sins forgiven. A place in heaven reserved, but now I discover there's icing on the cake. God sees me now as His Son. I'm in God's family. In other words, God has placed a ring in my finger. A ring in my finger. See, if you had the eye of faith to see me as God sees me, you'd see me dressed in the robe of righteousness. You'd see a ring in my finger, a ring of sonship. Yes. You'd see a kiss mark on my neck, the kiss of forgiveness. I got all of that. And when God gave me all of that, he didn't give it by an spirit of bagudgery. He didn't say, there they are, and threw them at me. No, he gave me the ring, and he gave me the robe, and he gave me the kiss with a smile on his face and joy in his heart. That's who God is. He delights in the exercise of mercy. And of course, he threw in a party as well. He says, you know, I can't keep this joy to myself. I'm so delighted that this prodigal son has come home. I'm so glad. I, I, I forgive him. I've covered him with a robe. There's a ring in his finger. It's time to celebrate. So bring in the neighbors and let's rejoice. Something good has happened. If you come to the Lord Jesus tonight and take him as your saviour, something good is happening. For you. And for heaven. Would you like to throw God a party tonight? You can, by simply saying, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, be my Savior, and take my sins away. Arise, go to your Father, and say, Father, I have sinned. And let him give you a kiss of forgiveness. Let him put that robe of righteousness on you. Let him slip that ring of sonship onto your finger let him in heaven throw a party and celebration. Another sinner has repented and come home to God. Let's close in a wee word of prayer. Father, we thank you that indeed you're a wonderful, gracious, forgiving father. You're always looking out the window, waiting for sinners to come over the hell. To come back to the father's house. Father, we pray for any that may even might be here in our meeting tonight or you might even hear this online. Father, we pray that you'll point them to the cross where any doubts about your love for them will be dispelled. Help them to see one who died for them, that their sins could be forgiven, that they could be made righteous, that they could be brought into the family of God. Father, we pray that you'd save even this very night as we ask it in our Savior's precious name. Amen. God bless you.